Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each episode, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for today's episode will be covering an issue I've wanted to cover in the men's mental health space for a very long time, but it is one that is so stigmatised that naturally very few men have wanted to talk about it openly for very understandable reasons. Chris McHugh is a broadcast journalist and currently works for BBC Oxford. I came across Chris through friend of the pod Matt Graveling who sent me a piece he had done around miscarriage and baby loss with charity Winters Wish FC a bereavement football team for men affected by baby, child or pregnancy loss based in Didcot. The team promotes therapy through sport and have been nominated for a BBC Radio Oxford Make a Difference Award. In the piece, Chris speaks to a number of the men as well as sharing his own story of miscarriage and baby loss. And in this episode, we discuss his journalism journey, social media and a deep dive into the piece and all of the issues around miscarriage and baby loss for men. We then explore his own experience the grief he went through and how it differed hugely from his wife's processing of the event. We talk about the pressure men feel to emotionally support and protect their female partners after events like this, but also then don't know where to find support themselves and the guilt some men feel when they do want some time and space to grieve away from supporting their partners. We finish by discussing the tools that people need to support the men and women in their lives, especially men who are going through miscarriage and baby loss, and how we improve the conversation going forward. So this is how my conversation with Chris McHugh went. Chris, welcome to the Just Checking Pod. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you. After previous guest and friend of the pod, Matt Graveling, sent you the piece we're going to talk about later on in this podcast. I was very keen to have you on. So thank you for being here and being brave enough to share all of those issues we're going to discuss. First of all, how are you on this Sunday morning? Really good, actually. Yeah, a lot better than I was yesterday. That can be a topic for later on in the chat. Yesterday was a classic example of maybe how not to look after your mental health in a little bit away, but I'm, I'm much better. I'm much more energetic today. Maybe yeah. that's a weak, weak nudge, nudge to the session. Yeah, it, it, couldn't, it couldn't have been more perfectly timed, to be honest. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm really good. Thank you. Excellent, mate. I want this conversation to really help my male listeners directly, but also maybe my female listeners too, who might need some tools to help the men in their lives with the issues we'll discuss. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show? Absolutely. We're going to start your podcast by talking about your wider journalism journey, mate. So firstly, tell me about how and why you got inspired to get into it, where your love for writing or storytelling or presenting and everything in between came from and the journey to where you are today. You know, the very first time it started was at school, really. And even before then, I think my mum and dad always have having a newspaper in every single day. And the main reason the journalism session started was that I was obsessed with football. So I would just read Guardian football every single day. I would read every single piece. I'd read every single match report. 
I got really interested in how match reports worked. I love the idea of going to a football game, sitting there and getting a free ticket and basically just writing about football all day. It didn't even seem like it would be a job. It seemed like something that anyone would want to do. And then that just kind of developed into school. My strengths were much more towards English, history, languages, absolutely awful at maths and sciences. So that kind of meant that I wanted to head in that direction. Always enjoyed stories, always decent at writing stories at school. And then that meant that at uni, I wanted to go and do politics, not because I wanted to be a journalist, but because I wasn't able to study that school. Uh, my school had much more sort of traditional subjects and I wanted to be a little bit more aware of what was going on and add in some history in terms of what I was studying. And I knew that if I did politics, that would be a good start to get into journalism later, if that's what I wanted to get into more specifically. And then I actually was going to study a written journalism course at Nottingham Trent University, a newspaper journalism course. But there was an issue with one of the tutors who was unwell, so they offered me the opportunity to do a different one. They offered me radio journalism. I was always a big radio fan and a big music fan, so I thought, okay, that's a nice combination of the two. So that's why I studied radio journalism at Nottingham Trent University. That was 2007. Absolutely loved it. It taught you all sorts of skills, really helped your confidence in terms of not being able to be disgusted when you hear your own voice on air. (laughs) Oh, I've been Uh, there. (laughs) Yeah, that took a while to get through, but... Brilliant course. You've got BBC Radio Nothing in there, which I was able to do a placement in. Um, we'll talk a little bit about that in a second. But that's kind of where the whole thing started. So I think initially in my life, I always thought I'd do written journalism. But because of that quirk of fate at that point, I ended up moving into radio. And obviously, that's where I am now with a great big, huge gap in between. Yeah, loving it. Absolutely love being a broadcast journalist. It's the best job I've ever had. Well, let's talk about that placement then, because the first one you did was with your local BBC station, BBC yeah. Radio Nottingham. However, it wasn't all roses was it no it was a really interesting one it was only two weeks and I think right now I'm I'm working at BBC Radio Ox and we have someone working there who's 21 years old and I've never seen so much confidence and competency from someone that young and it really made me think back to my own placement so I would have been 22 when I was at BBC Radio Nottingham and I remember the first day going into the editorial meeting not really having a clue what I was doing you know, the news editor introduces you. This is Chris. You know, he's a placement student at BBC Radio Nottingham. No one really says hello that much. They've probably seen a thousand of you come through the yeah. door that year. You know, it's like, well, they'll be here for two weeks, then they'll be gone. Hopefully they're good at making tea. That's the kind of vibe that I sort of got. Not that people weren't very helpful and welcoming, but, you know, you're just so intimidated when you're that young. Or mm. I was. that I think when you're 21, 22, 23 years old, a lot of people either have just unshakable confidence in themselves because they've got that kind of freedom they're young there's no consequences and they're like yeah i'm just gonna go out there and smash it or you're more like me where in a way mentally or maybe even socially i maybe felt like i was only 16 17 just in terms of my sort of confidence levels a lot of the pace that went really really well went did a piece at the nottingham concert house where i kind of interviewed kids and interviewed parents who were doing this kind of big concert a lot of it went really well but there was an incident towards the end where I was given an assignment which would be broadcast at a specific time on the afternoon show. For whatever reason, either it wasn't explained to me clearly enough or I wasn't listening carefully enough and it's perfectly likely that it's potentially a combination of both. I didn't feel like I was going to finish the piece in time and I think it was due to air in a, an hour and a half, something like that. And I went to the news editor and I said, I can't finish it. I don't think it's going to be any good. Like I don't understand the editing enough. I just, I just going to can't finish it. And he basically blew up at me. And he basically was just like, what do you mean? What do you mean? It has to be in there. It has to go on. So he sort of slightly, not physically, but barged me out of the way and then kind of like basically edited himself quickly, quick, 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 quick. Right, okay, cool, it's done. And I was just like, what just happened? And I think 
I only remember a couple of things from that. One that I just was apologizing constantly. And then he was just like, that's okay. That's okay. He's like, I'm generally seen, I remember this line he said to me, he's like, I'm generally quite a soft news editor. Like, I'm, I'm quite <laughs> yeah. Wow. And if I'm that like, was him soft, I dread to think what that was him hard. Well, first of all, there's that. And the second of all, what kind of message does that send me in terms of the world I'm going into in the future? It's like, if he's the soft one, then what, what, what the hell? Like, I don't want to go into that later on. And I remember just being completely sort of shaken. And I finished for the day and I walked down the stairs. Oh, it's funny, I haven't really thought about this for ages. And I walked down the stairs. A guy who I didn't really know, he'd only met me once when he shook my hand and said hello. I think he was a producer. He was just like, are you all right? And I sort of turned around and I was like, yeah, I just, I guess I thought that because I'm a placement student, there would be something else that they could slot in if I wasn't able to finish that. That just seemed like a reasonable thing. And he's like, yeah, that's that's a reasonable thing to assume, but don't worry about it, like, you're doing fine. And that that meant like so much to me. I didn't even know this guy, but he could see that I was probably white as a ghost and like panicked, placement ruined or whatever. Everyone thinks I'm crap. Just followed me down the stairs and, and had a chat with me and that really made a difference. But still, it put me off. And I think mm. a lot of that is down to who I was at that time. I didn't have a lot of confidence. I only really became really confident about myself socially and professionally, I would say in my late 20s. I'm 38 mm. now. It took me a long time to kind of like grow into that security and my confidence and my abilities. It put me off journalism for, well, when did I get back into it? I finished that when I was 22, started in 2019. So 10, 15 years it put me Jesus. off going back into radio. You know, not everyone would have had that extreme reaction. Other people would have shaken it off and been like, oh, that was a bit crap but i really want to do this i'll see what else is out there that's, that's not going to stop me but that wasn't who i was at that time mm. i think that's a really important thing to share mate because i think it gives a lot of parallels to how men feel able to trust and disclose their own mental health like you felt that you had to disclose that to your editor and say look i'm not going to be able to do this and then because of that negative reaction, you were put off the entire industry for 10 years. And I think this can happen a lot with men who disclose their mental health. If they get a negative reaction, they might get put off for 10 years for disclosing again, or or they might never disclose again. Do you see those parallels too when it comes to that? I didn't see it then. I don't think I saw it as a, a mental health thing on that occasion. I saw it as like a, a basic... It's vulnerability though. Yeah, still... it was. I was willing. I wasn't going to be like, put my head down and be like, oh shit, I'm just going to make it. Because you could have. You could have just been like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to tell anyone. I'm just going to try and do it. And if I don't get no. it done, I'll just run away. <laughs> but I think, you know, you have different, it's almost like a fight or flight. You know, I, I guess that would have been the fight style reaction. Whereas mine was flight as in just sort of saying like, well, you know, the day I was basically saying, I'm really sorry, I can't do it, I need some help. <laughs> so yeah, that is where there's a parallel in terms of people getting a negative reaction to some vulnerability for sure. I think, mm. yeah, you asked when we were doing some research stuff, you asked me whether it was bullying. And it's really mm. interesting. I, I've been thinking about that so much since we organized this, what, like three or four months ago in terms of whether it was bullying. And I've really struggled to come to an answer. Because in my head, like bullying is like, there has to be a sort of a systematic element to it. Do you know what I mean? It's like you mean like left. a consistency of it? Yeah, like, like yeah, could, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's happening again and again and again, and it's kind of like grinding you down. I don't think it was like necessarily bullying. What I think it was was a element of a bygone era in some industries, not in all, I would assume, where the tough love come down hard on someone is going to toughen them up and blah blah blah. Mm. That's the industry, and that's a journalism thing as well. It's crunch mm. culture, it's deadlines, and it's all that kind of stuff. And I think gaming probably has the same. Gaming has the same now, kind of yeah. thing. Like yeah. get it done. There's no yeah. other alternative. And I think those things have got a lot better recently. It's certainly not the atmosphere I'm working in at the BBC now. It's very very different. But it's unfortunate that that was my first experience of journalism in that way for sure. 
like you said, it put you off for about 10 to 15 years. So how long did those scars take to heal? Because you did a fair few different jobs during this period. Yeah, I did, I did every job under the sun. I guess that was my, that, that <laughs> Just was like my Matt, way. to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was my way of either, whichever way you wanted to see it at the time, putting off doing what I actually should do because I'm good at it or trying to find myself in that way. So I was a courier for Hermes, driving around in my little 4KA, delivering parcels around Killington. <laughs> I you, was just getting rocks chucked at you. You've delivered it late again. <laughs> yeah, I got calls. You give people your mobile number. I got calls three years after I left the job. Going, have you seen my uh, Have you seen my ASOS parcel? I'm like, uh, hello. I'm sorry, I haven't done this job oh. for two years. Well, every are far worse now. So you've avoided, you've avoided that bullet, mate. <laughs> Do you know what though? It was a great job. I've always said this. It's one of my favourite jobs I had. I got paid terribly. You have to pay for your own fuel. You get paid like eighty p per parcel. But I was in my car in the summer, listening to Radio 1, driving around a suburb of Oxford, getting to know people. And I was like, I can see why some people probably like being a postman. Because yeah. like, you're out and about all day. It's, it was great. But I did that. I was a waiter. What else? I was a groundsman. So I had sort of developed on a summer job that I had at a school in Oxford. And I was a groundsman for a bit. And then I thought, right, it's about time I actually did something in my life. And I just still didn't want to go back into journalism at that point. So I decided I'd want to train to be a teacher. I was a teaching assistant at a Hindu school in North London for a year mm. to kind of get some experience, which was really, really great. And then I started to do a PGCE, a primary PGCE. I discovered that teaching was the most stressful thing I've ever done in my entire life. Loved being in a classroom there's with not, the kids. There's not enough primary male school teachers, mate. No. Let's be real. It's getting better, I think. But I actually had that in my head. I was like, I really like kids. You know, I'm a smart guy. I can, can probably teach primary school level stuff. But the level of organization required in terms of lesson planning and target hitting and stuff and all that kind of thing was not something that I was up for. And that was, I don't understand how teachers do their job. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. And I didn't even make it to a fully qualified NQT year. Anyway, all that kind of stuff finished. And then, um, yeah, it was full circle back to the journalism afterwards when my Mm. wife noticed a six month contract advert and she was like, I think you should have a go for it. And I did. And there I go. Well, one of the jobs you did to meet your wife was working at Oxford Brookes University. So how did meeting her change your life trajectory? And do you almost look back on it as well being like, hmm, well, that wilderness period did have a uh, upside in the end. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because I met my wife. (laughs) 100%. Well, it's it's how you think back on your life, isn't it? And you're like, well, I wish this had gone differently. Ideally, that had gone differently. But everything that you've gone to has led to a particular moment in your life where things started going much better. So yeah, we met working in the same department at Oxford Brookes University and we both loved our job for a little bit. It was kind of student services, you're helping people, you're on your feet a lot, we really enjoyed it. But then we didn't because it becomes quite repetitive. I think university administration jobs can become quite repetitive if it's not what you want to do properly or you don't want to rise up higher and higher as a manager, which we didn't really have any interest in doing in that industry. She then was lucky enough to find her dream job. So at the time, it was working with children, fostering and adoption for a council, a local council. Wow, that's intense. Yeah, we seem to be drawn to intense jobs. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe there's a pattern here. (laughs) Yeah, But she found out. So what that meant was that there was this kind of six month period where she was absolutely loving her job. And at the end of the day, she would have so much to tell me about her work and things that she's achieved. And frankly, you know, lives that she changed on a daily or weekly basis. And then she'd ask me how my day was been, and I was like, um, yeah, I had a meeting that was all right. I made a phone call that went well. <laughs> and we were both like, right, this, this situation cannot continue. So she found a six-month contract for BBC Radio Oxford on Indeed. And it, again, fascinating reaction. My immediate reaction was, they wouldn't want to talk to me. 
I've been out of the game for 10, 11, 12 years. How am I ever going to compete against anyone else who has maybe either just come from journalism school, you know, they've got better experience, someone who is coming from another radio station. I didn't think I had a chance, but the part of the interview which involved them asking you to go and find a story rather than go on the internet, I decided to just leave the building, try to remember some journalism skills that I was taught way back in Nottingham Trent. I walked up and down the local high street and tried to find 10, 11, 12 story ideas that would affect local people. And apparently that was what got me the job in the end, not me absolutely bluffing my way through media law questions and not having an absolute clue what they were on about or knowing who my local MPs were. So (laughs) that was what got me through. You landed that sick bone placement and then it was then extended. And two years later, you were made a permanent member of staff. So you've now been at BBC Oxford for four years, BBC Radio Oxford, I should say. How do you reflect on this period, given the way you fell in? And out, and they're back in love with journalism. <laughs> it's been amazing, to be honest with you. There's been so much growth for me personally and professionally, obviously. I think it's the best job in the world. And I know a lot of people would say that for their own role, but every single day is different. I'm meeting incredibly different people every day. I think one of the things I enjoy most about it within journalism is that BBC local radios general audience and target audience the people who tend to listen to us the most or who for whom that radio station is most important are people who are on the lower income scale and tend to be aged between 50 and 70 so it's people who tend to have lived in the same place their whole life and are really attached to their community and I think one of my favorite things about the job is getting to know those people getting to know our listeners getting to know the people whose lives we try and help and we try and make a difference to them a little bit it's public service journalism at its most pure in a way I would say you know we do things like we host cost of living clinics in different towns around the county where we'll bring together loads of different organizations set up a great big banner tell people that's happening bring people in just try and help them out a little bit and I think that level of journalism is not something I ever thought it would be my cup of tea I always thought I want to be a football journalist or something like that but I'll give you an example on Thursday I did a story on the radio and it went online which was about a housing block a council-run housing block in Oxford where their purpose-built magnetic door, which only gives access to the residents, have been broken in by drug dealers and drug users and the corridors of their apartment blocks were being used basically for drug taking and vandalism and people sleeping in there. There are people who have lived there for 57 years. One old lady's lived there for 57 years, scared to go out. And within a day of us broadcasting that story, the council had employed security guards to stand at the front door until a purpose-built door was made so these residents would be safe. Amazing. It was a great example of how local journalism is crucial, particularly yes. to those communities. and Holding people to account. And yeah. I think it's, it's beautifully timed in terms of me talking to you today that, that I think that is probably, in terms of its instant impact on the community of Oxfordshire or that particular community in Oxford, that's probably one of the best things I've done in terms of actually how journalism makes a difference to people's lives. So I think to be there now, compared to everything I've just told you before, I feel very lucky to be part of it, to be honest. Well, you spoke there about making a difference. Let's talk about the reason I came across you now, Chris, which is your story on BBC Radio Oxford that you did about miscarriage, baby loss, and how one charity called Winter's Wish, who won the BBC Radio Oxford's Make a Difference Award, is helping tackle this issue in Didcot. Set the scene for me first, and how are men and their mental health affected? I first came across this charity two years ago when I was simply on Twitter looking for stories about Didcot and looking for stories about other towns. I literally searched Didcot into Twitter and it came up with an advert for this charity who were organising a football game. So as you said, yeah, Winter's Wish is a charity that was organised by a chap in Didcot 
purely for men who had experienced either miscarriage or baby loss. And at the time, I didn't have any experience of that. And I didn't end up being able to do a story with them. I think we got distracted by some other stuff and it just never worked out. Fast forward a couple of years. That's something that my wife and I went through. So we experienced an early miscarriage about seven weeks. And it was quite the journey for us as a couple, her as an individual and me as an individual. And we are now pregnant and we are lucky enough that we're expecting our first baby in January. Congratulations. Thank you. But what that meant was I was not really willing to explore the topic personally or even do work on it before we knew that we were able to make that next step. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think, you know, we were very, very, very private about it to start off with because that's how you have to protect yourself in those situations. Mm-hmm. I think, again, this is when we can move on to the topic about how I learned the extent to which miscarriage is just really not discussed. It's one of those taboos, I think, where it is worsened by how, and we justifiably do this as a society, but we celebrate all things babies. We love babies and we love children and we love pregnancy and people get very very excited about it as they should do it's spectacular but i think what that does is make if, if you are if it goes uh, wrong the pain is just immeasurable isn't yeah, it and the people don't are, have to stare at the pain do they really no and i think if you are involuntarily childless whether that is permanently or temporarily i've interviewed people about it mate it's horrific yeah it's horrific. it is one of the hardest things we've ever been through as a couple it's certainly one of the hardest things i've ever been through but as we realized that our journey was changing and we were on to a good thing, I realized that maybe this was a good time to kind of explore my experience of the miscarriage. And then I realized that for the first time, I would be able to do a piece for BBC Radio Oxford, highlighting some incredible work that people were doing whilst being able to bring in my own experience into it, which from a journalism point of view, makes a really, really powerful story. Obviously, it really engages people who are listening because the person who they're listening to has got a personal stake in what they're being told so I made contact with Gary Gary is the guy that created it Gary Andrews he experienced a miscarriage and then a stillbirth when they were based in Nottingham he then created the story they've now got what they would call a rainbow baby who was born I think a couple of years ago now but he created this charity I got in contact with them the incredible timing was that as you say they've been nominated for a BBC make a difference award in the community category and so it was an opportunity for me to profile that charity and bring in my personal experience so I went and recorded with them playing football in Harwell. Then we went for a drink with everybody who was playing. Very intense pub <laughs> where you'd go like after a football match or, or whatever. But they were very kind and allowed me to put my microphones on and share some incredibly personal stuff with me. And I was able to put a piece together, a much longer piece than I've ever done before, seven or eight minutes. of It's mm. one of those things where it's like eight minutes long, but listening to it felt much shorter just because you're kind of hooked on these people's stories. And yeah, I was lucky enough that it was picked up by Radio 4 in terms of like a personal journalism achievement. The first thing I'd ever had played nationally, which obviously, considering it was a personal experience story, made it all the more gratifying that I could get it out there. Beautifully narrated by the gentleman whose name I've forgotten, who hosts Pick of the Week, but it was just like perfectly done. And yeah, then Gary ended up winning the award, which is fabulous. It's just a great experience. Yeah. And that's kind of where that ended, really. And it was just an incredible way to get through it, really. Mm. It's very cathartic. Let's talk about the interview and the piece in depth now, mm. because the owner, like you said, has a hashtag on all of the shirts called United for Loss. Mm. Now, from speaking to him, how important was that in putting the issue front and centre and confronting it rather than letting it be this proverbial elephant in the room? 
Yeah, I think getting men to talk about it is that's such a key element of mental health anyway. But I think when it came to miscarriage, getting men to talk about it was even more important because when it comes to miscarriages and baby loss and child loss, as Josh, one of the people who took part in the piece, told me, God, his story was really hard to listen awful, to, wasn't it? Absolutely yeah. awful to listen to. But the point that he made was that men's primary instinct is to protect, provide, yes. support, give help. And in the case that's, of... For some reason, that's controversial to say now, but yeah, yeah. that's literally true. <laughs> I think it's an instinct. It's a base instinct. Yes, but also, it's evolutionary. It it's, and it's the most important thing in, in miscarriage and grief because, again, his point was, you know, the woman is going through this hormonal torment yes. and physical She torment. carried it, you know, she it's going to affect it. her more physically and mentally, arguably, yeah. And we are there to support, but as he said, word for word, we can't do anything. We are if, helpless. If That's the, worse for us, isn't it? If yeah. you've got skills and the tap breaks or the fridge breaks, you can fix that, but you can't fix something like that. You can't make it better. All you can do is just be there for that person, which is one of the hardest things you can do. And at the same time, you are having to figure out a way to look after your own mental health at the same time. And I think mm. those combination of factors means that when it comes to miscarriage, grief, baby loss, in that sense, it's even harder for men to find a space to talk about it. And that's why Gary's charity and Gary's football team has been such an incredible piece of work for everybody who's been through it. Whether it's mm. someone like me who has gone through one early miscarriage, whether it's Gary, excuse me, whether it was Josh who had been through seven and one ectopic pregnancy, which is unimaginable frankly it had um yeah that was kind of the the importance of the team and mm. that's why then winning that bbc radio oxford award was so well deserved basically i thought the conversation between gary and the barman was really touching in how he reacted to gary telling him about the charity as well mm. as his admission that he was lucky to have two children and now i was really glad that you captured that sometimes people think that the stigma men face in 2023 is from judgment from other men like they may have done 10, 15 years ago, however long it was. However, providing that other person is emotionally intelligent enough, these conversations prove that men don't have to fear that perceived judgment anymore. And I think what it showed was, you're right, what that barman's reaction showed was is that that empathy and love and understanding is already there. It, yes. just, it just needs the platform. In this case, it needed someone like Gary to create the charity and put it out there as an issue and put it out there as something that people really, really struggle to deal with. I really like the point that you've made because I think that chat between the barman and Gary wasn't actually included on the Radio 4 bit because he didn't have space. And my conversation with Josh when he talked about his experience was, and arguably that was the most powerful aspect in terms of the drama that he had been through. I like the fact that you picked up on that. I think that conversation was, and you heard the barman go, oh yeah, I know people have been through that because so many people have been through that. And I think there's an extremely high percentage of people that go through a miscarriage at whatever stage. And I think mm. the fact that those guys were able to gather around what was otherwise like a pretty tough pub and just chat around things that they've all been through. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was, it was incredible to listen to. And it was a real privilege to record it, actually, and managed to, to get it out there. As well as that, Gary speaks not just about the loss of the child or the baby, but the loss of the future plans he's made with his partner. How does that form an additional layer to the grief? I think from the moment you realise, or the moment you find out that you're pregnant, you start making plans. You start thinking about everything from what kind of parents you're going to be, what the child's going to look like. Are they going to have a good relationship with their grandparents? Are they going to like football? Are you going to take them to a gig? Are you going to put them in the back of a rucksack and take them up a mountain and, and all that kind of stuff? The latter being what we will do as soon as we're able to. I think 
It's the secondary loss. It's the loss of plans for the future and a loss of what you had imagined your life to be at that point. And I think it's something that I never really understood until we went through it. And this is how I dealt with it immediately. And I dealt with it in this way as well, because you're trying to make it better for your partner. Mm. But I dealt with it in a very kind of, I basically said all the wrong things. (laughs) You basically go, at least it shows that we can get pregnant. At least... uh, You're trying to take positives out of it, aren't you? You're trying to, yeah. That's not the move. No. One thing I would say, one thing I've learned from this whole experience and that I've learned from learning other stuff about mental health is that if someone goes through something and they're talking to you, never start any sentence with at least because you're not giving room to the issue in that moment. You're not acknowledging this is shit. This is what's happened. And it just needs to be acknowledged that moment. Yeah. You're deflecting rather than validating. Yeah. And as I discussed with Josh on the piece, it's an honorable instinct. Yes. It's well-meaning. It's it's well-meaning and it's well-intentioned to try and make that person feel better, but that's not what they need at that moment. All they need is someone to look at them and go, that's awful. This is shit. I'm really sorry. We're going to get through it. I'm really sorry that you went through that. That is just shockingly bad. (laughs) Mm. And I think I also have, for whatever reason, I don't know whether it's something from my past, I've always had a mental resistance to processing grief. So when someone either close to me or not that close to me has died, I really struggle to feel any emotion about it. I don't know what that is. Part of my brain just goes, well, they're gone. What am I going to do about it? Nothing. So I may as well move on. And I don't know where that comes from, but it led to a real gap between my wife and I who is much more geared towards processing things as they come and really analyzing and deep diving into how she feels in order to then come out the other side of it so there's nothing left behind and I think that's an incredible way of dealing with stuff it's not the way that my brain works Mm -hmm. so part of that mental health struggle with me after the miscarriage was being connected with my partner and trying to find a way to get through it together and not miss each other too much and give each other that space and time to process it in their own way which I think is one of the hardest things that you can do in a relationship we spoke earlier about Josh and his story is just so heartbreaking for so many reasons he was trying to conceive for eight years and him and his partner went through seven miscarriages Mm. and after one of them he was playing football with Winter's Wish three hours later now discarding your journalism hat for a second here did you see that as positive escapism for him or were you a little bit concerned about that jump from immense grief Mm. to football with no time to process it. I certainly wouldn't like to put myself in the shoes of somebody who's been through that seven times, but all I can imagine was that it's the only thing that he could think of to do. Sure, I've, got, I've, yeah. got, I've, just, I've just got to go and play football. That's mm. it. I've got to go play football. I can't hack it. And I don't know what that conversation between the news of the final miscarriage, the seventh miscarriage for him, and him leaving the house to go and play football. I don't know what those moments would have been like between him and his partner, but... You know, he said that when he got there, everyone just gave him a look and he thought, they know, they know what I've been through. And no one had to ask him questions. He didn't have to tell anyone, he just wanted to play football. Yeah, that repetitive disclosure as well is so good, isn't it? And it's football, I think, is guys sitting around playing football, it's primal in that it takes boys, as it was, you know, back when we were kids, it takes boys primarily back to what they remember to be the most easygoing, fun, consequence-free thing in their life, which is just having a kick about and playing football. You don't have to think about anything else. All you've got to think about is whether you can put it past the keeper. That's it. You have to think about what you're going through in the rest of your life. It's like the most magnified version of why anyone just plays sport on a Friday night after work or their Wednesday night five aside. It's an escape. It's something different. But I think for Josh, it was, I know I haven't asked him this particularly, but uh, specifically rather, but I think for Josh, it was 
I have to go and play football. How could you process anything after the seventh time? It's unimaginable, frankly. The, 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 yeah. what, what we went through doing it once, I've always said that, yeah, I wouldn't wish anything like this on my worst enemy. But to go through it seven times and be as, be as open as Josh was with me, who he'd never met, but he'd made a decision. I said, are you okay to share stuff with me? And he's like, yeah, I'll talk about anything, mate. I'll talk about anything. You know, he had made a decision at that point to be open about everything. Through a lack, a lack of alternative, I think. What else is he mm. going to do? He would have known that if he shuts it down after seven times, he'll torture himself. So I think that was the decision he made. And I think he is an amazing guy. When it comes to your own use of the team, has it helped you? Yes. I think it helped me for a short period. I think I was lucky enough, you know, we knew that we were pregnant when I started the piece because I knew that I had that to fall back on. I had that to reassure me in terms of any trauma that would have been brought up for me to be around people with these kind of stories. I was able to, to say to myself, I don't mind doing this right now because I'm lucky enough that we're now expecting a child and we're far enough along that we're confident that we're going to be okay. I think I I had a little kickabout with them. I then played a full-blown charity match against some Didcot dads on an 11-a-side pitch. I haven't played 11-a-side football for 10 years. It was a disaster. I was like playing centre midfield. I was knackered after 10 minutes, got stubbed off. Unbelievably embarrassing. However, really, really good day. But I was giving a lad after that game a lift home. I asked him, oh, how did you get in touch with the charity? Like, why are you here? He told me a story that was not helpful for me as we looked forward to the birth of our first child. Not his fault. But he described a circumstance which put images and ideas it in my head. It triggered you. Yeah, yeah, huge, big trigger. And it went, oof. I just thought to myself, I don't need to be around this for the time sure. being. Yeah. And so I sent a message to the guys on the WhatsApp group and I just said, listen, been amazing hanging out with you guys. I'm so happy that I was able to kind of give you guys a bit of airtime and all that kind of stuff. But I'm going to take some time away just to focus on I think I said, you know, we want to look forward to the kind of the healthy birth of our first child. And I decided that I needed to protect my headspace a little yeah, bit. And just kind of, right. yeah, and just focus. And I, and I felt good about it. You know, for one moment, I was like, am I just going in there as a journalist, making friends with them, putting them all on the radio? They're sort of talking about their difficult experiences. And then jetting off. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. off. Yeah. And I was like, it's just the right thing to do. But I put the text on the WhatsApp group and Gary replied on the WhatsApp group. No worries, Chris. Lots of people do that. Lots of people like to take breaks and time out from the team and, and all that kind of stuff because there are, we don't, no one goes, right, everybody share now. It's not like that. People bring up stuff if they want to bring stuff up. But I just decided it was the right time to step away to be able to kind of keep my mind focused on positives. These men at Winter's Wish obviously need a space just for men, just as women do for this issue too. Do you think we have enough of these spaces? Because if they do, then in theory they can access them, benefit and be that support for their partner that they want to be and do need to be. <laughs> I think it's getting better. I think sometimes you don't know that that space needs to be created until it's created. So I think Gary's charity is like a really good example of that. It's arguably a niche. It's focused on a very specific type of... It's niche uh, but needed, let's be it's real. It's niche but needed, yeah. yeah. And in a weird way, actually, I'll correct myself, it's not niche because of how common it is to go through that kind of thing. I think, are there enough spaces for people to discuss that thing? <sighs> I don't know. I think someone like yourself is doing a great job in terms of creating a platform, creating an opportunity, creating a media platform for people to kind of explore those ideas. I think 
there are much more discussions about mental health in communities that we don't think they exist. So I think I had a stereotypical view that maybe these sort of more working class communities, which I don't claim to be a part of, but which these proper sort of like working class communities in Didcot and Wallingford, which I've experienced through that team, I think there can maybe be a stereotypical view, or at least I had a view that maybe mental health, because it's like, is not discussed in those terms. I think the conversation between Gary and the barman showed me that I was maybe wrong about that. And it's less kind of introduced as let's talk about our mental health. Yeah, it's, it's less fluffy. Yeah, it's, it's, hot, less yeah fluffy. it's less fluffy. It's just like, well, yeah. let's, I went through this, mate. I can't hack it, blah, 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 blah. And that's what they talked about. I think the way I always summed it up is that I think discussion of like men's mental health has got a long way to go. I think it's getting much better. But I think charities like Gary's, his creation has definitely given me more confidence that those are on the up as it were, then it has been discussed. I think the mental health conversation has come on leaps and bounds in the past five, 10, maybe 15 years. And I think other things are now following that with more specific experiences like miscarriages and grief. But I wouldn't like to say yes or no about whether I think there are enough spaces. But I'll answer it and say for you, there's not. I felt like that's where you were going on that one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think you've really explored those kind of avenues and areas, haven't you, in terms of, I'm trying, terms, mate. In terms of your work? I'm trying, yeah. Mate. yeah. Let's reflect on your journalism journey, mate. First of all, did you and your wife listen to the piece? Uh, I listened to the whole thing. I had to. I mean, I'll tell you what, in terms of that journey, when I was editing it or when I was talking to my colleagues, they asked me, was it hard for you to make that, to be around those conversations? And I said, it was harder for me to edit it. Because when I was always is mate, isn't yeah. it? It's always edit, harder to edit. Yeah, but I think in my case, when I was making the piece, there was a combination of me actually finding talking about it with other blokes who have been through it quite cathartic in terms of the pure purpose of that charity. Also, I had my journalism head on in that I, I want to create a good piece for the radio. I want to do my job well, and I think that carried me through that conversation. I didn't find it too difficult having that discussion, and also I was really lifted by how honest other people were being with me. I think when I was editing the piece and I had to listen to those stories over and over again and perfect it and tinker it and that process that you're familiar with, that I didn't enjoy. I didn't enjoy editing it. I think I was really pleased with the final piece and I played it to one of my editors and expecting them to say, cut it down by three minutes. And they were like, it's perfect as it is, leave it. And you know, I was really thrilled that that was their thoughts on it. I didn't enjoy the editing process because I had to just go through it over and over again. And I think when the piece was finished... I was really glad that it was finished. Mm. Yeah, I think I, for the same reason that I decided to leave the team, at least temporarily, I am kind of taking a step back. And I think if someone else, if someone came up to me and said, in fact, one of our presenters said, would you be up for like, you could do like a follow up with them and maybe get in touch with David Beckham because he can do really good stuff with charities. And he probably would, you know, he lives locally and he's, he sometimes chooses charities really, really well. He's from my end. Now he's, he's living in Oxfordshire. God, yeah. <laughs> he's a Leightonstone boy. <laughs> I thought he was Chingford. Isn't he a Chingford? Nah, Leightonstone, Leighton. But yeah, okay. he's, his gaff was in Chingford. He can often choose like really good charities to get behind, ones that you wouldn't normally expect. But I remember thinking and saying, no, I need to stop. Anyone else is free to kind of like take the project on. But that was actually the first time in my sort of journalism career that I was like, I need to not do that anymore. Just to, Mm. I feel like it's been a fascinating chapter, a real personal highlight. And I really feel like I, I was thrilled that it gave Gary's charity the recognition that it deserved. But at that point, I really needed to step away. What's been your proudest achievement? I think that's been my proudest achievement. I think to have a piece broadcast on 
Radio 4 so it can reach a wider audience. A couple of people, two, three, four people got in contact with the team as a result of listening to it on Radio 4, which is obviously fabulous. That's the recognition that the team deserved. I think I'm proud that I was able to push myself to giving a piece that I made a personal angle, which is not something that I've ever felt. I've lived a very, what I would call privileged life, and I have therefore been reluctant to bring my own personal stories or personal experience into the radio that I make. Rightly or wrongly, I think there are people who deserve that airtime and deserve that attention more than me, not because I don't think I'm a good person or anything like that, but I think I've generally, I haven't had, my wife would disagree with me on this, like I haven't had an easy ride. There's been really difficult stuff that's happened in my life. But I think on that occasion, I'm proud of making sure that I put myself out there in terms of if it helps other people, if it makes the piece more powerful, if it gets that charity the recognition it deserves and bringing my own experience and grief and trauma into it. I think I'm I'm pretty proud of doing that. And as a final question before we move on, what has this journalism journey taught you about yourself? <sighs> hmm. I think it's it definitely taught me some resilience. I think I've had a habit in my life of trying something and if it didn't work, quitting and giving up. I think looking back, one of my regrets after the issue in BBC Radio Nottingham was that I didn't push through and really try and get ahead. I think sometimes I feel like if I had started my journalism career 10 years ago in its more natural form and not done all these other jobs in between, I would maybe be further on in my journalism career. You know, I think I would maybe be in a more senior position potentially or working for a bigger network or something at 38 years old. But at the same time, I correct myself on that by going, everything has happened for a reason. It's led me to this spot. If everything hadn't happened that way, I wouldn't have given that charity the attention it deserved. I wouldn't have got security guards posted outside that block where residents feared for their safety. So everything kind of comes full circle for a reason. So I'm proud of coming back to journalism and I'm proud of what I've been able to achieve locally, just, just for people in Oxford and Oxfordshire, I guess. We've talked all about Chris, the journalist. Let's go deeper and talk about your own mental health journey, mate. So take me back to early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Chris we meet here? So I think I generally really enjoyed my childhood. I was lucky enough to go to some good schools and I have generally lived in comfort most of my life. The biggest thing that happened to me in terms of shaping who I was was that my mum and dad split up when I was 12 years old. And that was pretty rough. But I think it was one of those where I never really realised the effect it had until later on. So it was a situation where they hadn't been getting on particularly well, I think probably for a year or two before that they split up. I could picture being around the kitchen table with my dad on my right and my mum on my left. And then basically sort of going, this is what we're going to do because that holiday we just went on was a bit grim. I can remember those exact words because it had been a bit grim. They hadn't been getting on, been arguing quite a lot. So I think that was my first experience of like, oh, life isn't all sunshine and roses and there's going to be some uh, some challenges here. That was definitely the first part I remember for sure. Mm. We mentioned it earlier, but I want to dive into your own experience of miscarriage and baby loss now, Chris. So you and your wife lost your baby when they were seven weeks old in April 2022. Mm. Just tell me first about the build up and that initial pregnancy period before the grief happened. Yeah, so we got pregnant within about three months of trying, which our understanding is pretty normal. That's kind of a decently average time for a, a sort of like a, a, a young couple sort of starting off. We were thrilled, but it didn't last long. 
so I think we trying to sort of there was a couple of different events so basically the actual test the first test we had the line was quite faint and we therefore decided to go to a all hours practice and we went in there and my, well, my wife went in I think it was still COVID restrictions at that point so I wasn't allowed in but basically she came back and told me yeah, I did another urine test. The line is still fairly faint, but she said that we're definitely pregnant. And then we decided to then, he then referred us to uh, what's called an early, I think it's called an early pregnancy assessment unit in Oxford. And I remember being in the car with her on the way there and we were talking about how different people would react. One of her best friends was recently pregnant. And so that would meant that they'd be able to be pregnant at the same time. And then the babies would be the same age. And we were sort of talking about who's going to give us the best reaction, all that kind of stuff. Went into the early pregnancy unit and went and did a blood test. And there was a result that came back. She had to have a certain count of something in her blood and it was too low to indicate a pregnancy. So they just said, so yeah, that's, um, it looks like it, it looks like there's been an early miscarriage. And they said it quite clinically. It wasn't particularly warm. We've experienced better bedside manners from health professionals. It wasn't ideal. We sat in the room, my wife burst into tears. I didn't really know what to do that's it you're basically just said this is where you can get support and we just sort of walked out into the car park and drove home <laughs> it's brutal. i didn't really know and it was, it was brutal mm. absolutely brutal and that's when i started with uh, well i do you know what i was okay because i was like i guess this happens and it's like we'd try again and then maybe we'll get pregnant again it's it'll be all right you know we're young and that's the other one at least we're young at least it is an early miscarriage, at least blah, 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 blah. And I did every trick in the book to try and kind of push myself through it, but it wasn't helpful for my wife. And yeah, from that point, it was one of the hardest years you've ever experienced. You try and find a way to get around it. You go into Sainsbury's and everyone's pregnant. You go into Tesco and there's babies everywhere. You want to watch Channel 4. There's a right move advert where someone's bringing a baby home. You want to chill out by watching Friends. Rachel's having a baby. Skip the episode. And wants to watch a brand new series that she hasn't seen before. The first storyline is a miscarriage. It's everywhere. And that was kind of what our year was about, really, or up to, was it, 10, 11 months of that year, was just trying to avoid triggers all over the place. So, yeah, that was that, really. Well, the difficult part is that those triggers aren't going to go away anytime soon. And you're going to probably going to have to either learn to manage the triggers or overcome them because if you're avoiding all of those then you're not going to live a fairly normal life because it's not just popular culture it's you know you walk you can walk outside and see a pregnant woman and then you can feel triggered it's mm. like are you gonna become an agoraphobe it's like it's a tough one well the reality is that has changed since we've i imagine it would yeah so now there are certain things that we will still not watch. Sure. So we will not watch. We won't watch One Born Every Minute. Yeah, well, we I'll, I would assume that. <laughs> <laughs> and we won't watch. So what will happen now, we, we will put certain protections in. So I'm okay with them. But what will happen is, like, so for example, classic example, Em said, I think I want to watch the new series of Virgin River or something like that, one of those Netflix dramas. And she was like, can you just like check the plot lines? And I can figure out a way to check it out. Check it. It's like a family drama, perfectly possible that that kind of storyline could come up. I check the plot lines. Yes, turns out that there's a, a miscarriage theme in the, in the plot and I let her know, right, that series is off the table. So we've built in certain protections to protect our own mental health and our own journey in this to make sure that we're as positive and as safe as possible. But fortunately now, we're so far into this that those triggers of kids in the supermarket and pregnancy adverts and stuff are no longer a factor for us at this point, which is 
frankly, a massive relief because mm. I think the worst part of it was simply not being able to escape it. And I think, again, like we discussed before, as the guy, I'm like, there's nothing I can do. I can't tell her to sit in the house and not put the telly on and not go out. We can't do that. So I'm very grateful that we're beyond that point now. You spoke earlier in the pod about having this block on processing grief or processing really deep emotions. Can you just mm. unpack that for me? Does it originate from the divorce maybe or is it something else entirely? I do know what I have never sat down professionally with anybody and analyzed it. So I could not tell you where that comes from. I can recount experiences, you know, my, um, I don't know what, what the technical term is, but my elder half sister, her mother, when she passed away, my mum and her had a very close relationship, almost like sisters. And she was unwell with cancer. And she phoned me up and sort of gave me the news. And she was a great person. I really liked her. She's died. And I was like, okay, I've just felt nothing. And I don't know what it is. I don't know whether there's never truly been someone really, really close to me that's passed away. I love my grandparents, but I was 16 when my grandfather passed away and we had a more formal relationship. You know, we weren't like really sort of cuddly a relationship. So I don't know what it is. You know, my wife and I have had conversations about, well, about why that might be, whether it was just never discussed in my family, whether everyone just does the stoic English kind of, well, let's just carry on type situation. And maybe that's it. I think my dad has always had a complicated relationship with his parents. He wasn't particularly upset when they died and, if he was, he didn't show it. I think mum, when her parents died, she was really close to them. But when they passed away, she was really upset. But I just didn't, I didn't know what to do about it. Mm. So I, I don't know. I, I wish I had an answer for you in terms of where my grief block comes from. Mm. But I'm more aware of it now, which means that I have been able to better look after other people who go through it more than I do. Mm. So when my wife's grandmother passed away, she was devastated. They had a really close relationship and I was better at understanding that and being there for her in that, even if it wasn't something that I would say really devastated me in the same way. Just coming back to the miscarriage, we were speaking off air about popular culture examples of miscarriage portrayed. And you spoke there about kind of avoiding these ones in TV shows. And the most prominent one I could think of was an episode of Only Fools and Horses in 1996, which I believe was aired at Christmas at the time, where Rodney's girlfriend, Cassandra, has a miscarriage. And I remember in the episode, Del Boy gives Rodney some really strong advice in how to support her before he goes into the hospital room. And the most emotional line I found is when Cassandra says to him, I'm sorry. How did you as a husband stop your wife from feeling any form of guilt or shame for that happening, which is completely out of her control and not her fault? I wasn't able to stop that. I think you listen to how she feels. You cannot stop her from feeling like she's failed. I couldn't stop her from feeling like she'd failed. I could listen and I could go, I could tell her it's not her fault because it's not. I knew that for a fact. You know, I know that miscarriages aren't their fault. But the truth is, I can't put myself in that position mm. of knowing what it feels like to lose a child inside yourself. And I think the Miscarriage Association and other people who have been through it would tell you that feeling that you failed as a mother, as a human, as someone who's capable of carrying a child is a very, very normal reaction to a miscarriage. All I could do was just tell her it's not her fault and that's it that's all you can do and even if they're you know even you're thinking to someone like Josh if there's something inbuilt into his wife's physiology which means her body is struggling for whatever reason 
to carry a pregnancy to term. I can't imagine how much she feels that emotion or she felt a similar emotion to M after having to go through it seven times. But the reality is it's not anybody's fault. So I think I just really had to be present and listen. It's all I could do. Not offer advice, not suggest we do lots of different things. Just hold her, let her cry, tell her it's not her fault. Mm. You have to recognise. What I've learned, I think, in that is that you have to recognise your own limitations. One thing that we've spent years getting to in terms of the difference in the way we do mental health is that because I want things to be better. As a guy, you yeah, want you, to be better. We're solutions focused, aren't we? Yeah. We're solutions focused. And I'm like, if I say this or I give this piece of advice, this person will feel better and therefore my life will be better. So there is there is a selfish element to it because you want your partner to feel better so you can feel better so you can just crack on with your life. And that's kind of where my brain is often gone. But it's such a simple solution and it's taken me this long to realise if you try and rush someone to being somewhere where they're not ready to be, it will simply take longer. Or rush yourself. Or rush yourself. As I found out to my own detriment. <laughs> right. When it's like, but if you just simply acknowledge and meet them where they are, and you meet yourself where you are, and you go, this is awful, I have to just sit back and process this, you will more likely get to where you want to be faster. After the miscarriage, and before you became pregnant again, you said that you were doing fairly okay until a moment where you said your belief to just get on with it and try getting pregnant again began to falter. Why did that happen? Because it took time. Mm. It took longer. It took longer to get pregnant the second time than it did the first time. And when what I have learned or what my understanding is that when a woman goes through a miscarriage, there are a lot of hormonal what's the word I'm looking for? Changes or adjustments? Yeah, there's a lot of adjustments. There's a lot of, there's a lot of recovery time and it varies from person to person. And for example, things like periods are really irregular or they can be late and all of a sudden they can be early. And so obviously that has a knock-on effect on ovulation periods. And when your understanding of someone being able to get pregnant or not changes, so you therefore can't keep track. Sometimes that's a good thing because the more you keep track of it, the less fun it is. It's not exactly, you can't, if you're trying to do things on a schedule, it's not in any way fun. It's not in any Sex way Sex Thursday at 5 p.m. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you're trying to get pregnant and you haven't had a miscarriage, that can begin to be an issue because it's like, well, this isn't spontaneous and it's, it's mechanical. not full of romance yeah. and love. Yeah. And I think after the miscarriage, it took a long time. And then obviously in your mind, you're thinking, well, if we do get pregnant, how long is it going to last? And I think your mind instinctively through being bitten goes further ahead. And so you have to work really, really hard at going, is this working? No, stop. Let's just, <laughs> let's just watch Amazon. Let's just watch telly or something like that. And I think... What helped us is that we had to have conversations about, okay, we had to set timing markers for ourselves. So we had to look further into the future and go, all right, if we get to November and nothing's happening, then we need to stop and we need to think about taking a, a break. We need to think about how would we feel about adopting because your mind has to go there. if you Or IVF or something like that, yeah. Or, yeah, yeah, or IVF. Or we, we, I think we said to ourselves, by December, we need to know what we're doing. We need to make Well, that's choice. good though, mate, because some people just delay yeah. it or put it off and because the pain is too great. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's good that you did that. I'm very blessed and very lucky that my wife's understanding of her own mental health and what works for her is very, very good. And I've learned a lot from her in terms of being able to set boundaries, being able to set timing markers in order to protect yourself. That's how we managed that. And, you know, fortunately, we realized we were pregnant six months before we set our deadline, as it were. Mm. So I think 
being able to do that probably you know you never know about these things but maybe it felt like it really relaxed us and Mm. probably helped us in the in the long run there's a widespread superstition mate where prospective parents don't share pregnancy news until about three months i think is the the marker yeah Yeah. and now given you lost your baby at seven weeks did that lack of posting about it and therefore lack of social media onslaught Mm -hmm. at least give you privacy to grieve yeah definitely we were a great example of why not to say anything until that point we did tell some people very very close to us because at the time it was like you know because of the the journey that i mentioned it was not necessary it was looking a bit shaky in terms of different tests that we'd had so we did speak to some people and just asked them to keep us in our thoughts and will it along for us but they were only maybe one or two people extremely close to us and so yeah we're very pleased that we didn't mention that news and i think what it also meant is that you didn't have to get any texts that you didn't want which may well have said something like well at least x (laughs) so yeah we're very glad that we kept it under wraps Mm. and i think for us it was a really good lesson in terms of yeah no matter how excited you are it needs to be protected Mm. up until that point at least for sure before we reflect you know i'm touching wood and tapping all my heads about you know hopefully your pregnancy is going to go absolutely fine and you're going to have a healthy and happy baby is there a part of you that you felt or your wife felt that now that you've got this new pregnancy any form of guilt from moving on or that you're forgetting the memory of the child that you lost you know will you hopefully in one you know tell the new mm. child one day about the miscarriage for example do you know what that's a great question i don't think we've really had that conversation i think you're kind of i last... know why because you're, you want to get the next stage done first and then have to think about that <laughs> yeah well and we're joyful yeah to be honest you know i think we've allowed this period of our lives to be really joyful and also you know my wife's really enjoyed the pregnancy she's pretty sick for the first trimester as is standards and she's had some hip pain and stuff but that's largely gone away we're lucky enough to have had a really good pregnancy and she has been active and we've been really happy and we've at the stage where we're buying stuff now and I think to be perfectly honest the miscarriage is not a very common top of conversation I think it comes up when, when we're watching telly and we see an advert we sometimes go to ourselves we say to ourselves remember how horrific that was I don't know whether you watch a lot of stuff on channel four but when you watch a drama on channel four they're sponsored by Arnold Clark the car company oh right and there's an advert where they're clearly advertising how smooth their cars are because there's a couple of parents driving a car at night and they go over a speed bump and they go, <gasps> and they look really worried and they look back and there's this little cute baby in a car seat which kind of stirs but doesn't wake up. And we remember watching that advert when we'd had the miscarriage and it was awful. We were like, just wait for it to be over. And then now we can watch it and go, oh, it's so cute. Oh, it's so exciting. So we're really in this place, which is completely different, but we can acknowledge it and we can go, remember how horrendous that was back in the day. Yeah, yeah, rough. But in terms of how we acknowledge the miscarriage in the future, we genuinely have not had that conversation. So I couldn't tell you. (laughs) Let's reflect on your mental health journey, mate. Similar question as before. What has this wider mental health journey taught you about yourself, first of all? I think it's taught me certain things about myself in terms of how I'm similar or different from other people. I think, you know, from a very basic point of view, it teaches me strengths or weaknesses I have. And how I can learn from them. I think it's taught me that seeking help is one of the best things that you can ever do. I think it's also taught me that sometimes when you seek that help, it doesn't work out. So I was really struggling with a part of a relationship with my dad about two or three years ago. And I was able to get six sessions, 
through my work. You can get like six free. I did that when I was at the BBC a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Didn't work out. I didn't click with the Sometimes that happens, mate. Yeah, didn't click with them at all. Actually kind of made things a bit worse. Mm, I felt like they employed just really poor techniques, like bringing their own experience into it, occasionally swearing, which I found off-putting, even though I swear all the time, I just found it off-putting in a counselling environment. And so I just walked away from that. I've had another long, long running counsellor session two, three years before that, which was fabulous and changed my life in terms of how I was able to establish relationships better, romantic relationships, because of my dad and all that kind of stuff, which I haven't really talked about much in detail. But I think it's taught me primarily that whether it's asking people for help, who asking your partner, talking to your best mate or seeking that professional help, and maybe having to be resilient if that professional help doesn't work out. It's okay to chuck it, move on to the next one. Doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. Just means that you don't click with your counsellor. I think it's taught me that reaching out for help ultimately is the best thing that you can do for sure. And second of all, as a final question, if you could go back and talk to the Chris who was doing those odd jobs and feeling a bit directionless, the Chris who was wondering whether to apply for that BBC Oxford six-month placement, or the Chris in the midst of that baby loss grief, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? Uh, I'd probably ask him what he was afraid of. I think fear has like had a massive impact in my life in terms of fear of failure, putting myself out there. That combined with my feeling is because I've often had things given to me in my young life, it has prevented me from taking risks because I have had an instinct of, well, if that doesn't work out, I'll be all right. I can lean on my mum and dad or I can move back home or you know my mum will be like that's all right don't worry you know what do you need help with this and the other the reality is that's always been something that's available to me and I think whilst all again well-intentioned and them having their own reasons why they did that I've had to learn that it's not okay to just lean on that you have to put yourself out there otherwise you're not going to be able to achieve things you're not going to be able to build your confidence you're not going to be able to get where I am now which is probably not as far in a career ladder as other people my age, 38 years old, but everything brought me to this point for a reason. And so, yeah, I think just learning that you have to push yourself a little bit. And if you fail at something, that's just the way life goes. That's that's absolutely fine. And don't say at least. (laughs) And don't say at least. (laughs) In a crisis. (laughs) That's That's true. That's another big one. Like if someone's really struggling with something, you just sit there and you listen. I had dinner with a friend of mine who's struggling with a fertility journey like the other week. And because of my experience, I wasn't able to offer him advice. I was able to just listen and understand it. And he got quite emotional. And I've never seen him emotional. He got quite emotional. We'd sat in a restaurant and he got really emotional about it. It was really unexpected, but I realised that was simply, he just needed to talk to me about what was going on. That's the power of listening, mate. And it was the power of listening, 100%. And I think, oh, here's the other thing I've learned. And I think I said to you when we talked this before, but I have discovered that listening is simultaneously the easiest and the hardest thing. <laughs> Welcome to my world. world. <laughs> yeah. Because, well, tell me, like, have you learned this bit? That it's easy because all you have to do is not give advice and you have to maintain eye contact and you acknowledge what they're feeling. And that's it. It's hard because sometimes you want to tell a story that you've experienced in order to make them feel better and to make them feel they're less alone but your experience will probably have nothing to do with what they've gone through even if you think it does or even if it does it's not helpful at the time it's not it's not helpful because you insert your own experiences into that conversation you're talking about yourself and this isn't about you in this moment even if it's well-intentioned so learning to listen is i think one of the best things anybody can learn whether that's a man or a woman it's just like just figure out how to listen don't offer advice don't talk about personal experience or something that your mate went through listen acknowledge how crap it is and if you're going to ask any questions it's 
what can I do to support you? Yeah. And that's it. And if you do offer advice, it's at the end when we're looking at solutions. And if they want yeah. that, yeah. If they've asked for them. Yes, yeah. exactly. Correct. Our final topic of conversation, Chris, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests, if we have time. It is a general natter and quick fire chat about our mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate? I'd say it's pretty good today. <laughs> today, generally, I'd say it's pretty good. I've still got some things to learn. I think this week was a really good example of it. I had an insanely busy week, nonstop, running around, reporting, editing, and doing it again the next day with some quite tough stories. My mental health is better when I learn to switch off. I was basically banned from looking at my phone all day yesterday by my wife. And it's one of the best things that she ever does because I can't let go. So there was a story which I did on the radio, which I was expecting to go up online and it hadn't gone up online. And I wanted to know why it hadn't gone up online. And I wanted to make sure all the text was correct. I wanted to make sure the photos were right. I wanted to check in with the people that I'd spoken to to make sure that they'd had security employed outside their front door like they'd been promised by the council. But that's not good. If I'm working, I need to be able to switch off. I'm not one of those journalists or people who have one of those jobs where they're happy to do it 24-7 on the weekend because I will burn out faster than other people. So I think my mental health is good as long as I keep it under control with the help of my partner and self-discipline. That's what I say. And what mental health issues or conditions, if any, do you live with and how do they affect you in your day-to-day life? I wouldn't say that I live with any named mental health conditions. I think I can get pretty anxious. I've never been diagnosed with any long-term mental health conditions. I have accessed mental health first aid at work once and I took a day off. I think when I was working at Brooks, I had a panic attack and I had to go home for the day and take a week off. It's the one and only one I've ever had. Wouldn't ever want to have another one. I think generally speaking, I wouldn't describe myself as having any long-term conditions. I think anxiety often plays a big part of my life if I'm not able to stick to my own rules. And I have, I would say, Some of the trauma related to my parents' divorce and my relationship with my dad sometimes rears its head in a slightly ugly way, but I've developed tools now on how to deal with that. I've got a really good support network around me, and fortunately, I'm able to generally keep myself on an even keel with that stuff. And what age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? What a great question. What age was I when I became aware I would say I pretty much bundled through life without realising whether I was okay or not until my late 20s. I would say I probably became aware of my own mental health journey in my late 20s and early 30s in terms of once you have that awareness, you realise the importance of building in techniques to manage it. Mm. And I don't think I really brought any techniques in to manage it until that time. So I'd probably say late 20s and early 30s, yeah. Can you remember the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What did you say? And what impact did it have? Did it feel like on the one hand, a big moment or weight had been lifted or on the other, something quite easy and normal to do? I would have to go for my first elongated counselling session that I had probably about, I would say, seven or eight years ago now. I made the decision to reach out to a counsellor after a relationship ended and that relationship had ended after I'd ended another relationship in order to embark on that relationship. <laughs> you so were monkey swinging. <laughs> it was, yeah. I was and I needed to find out the reason why yeah. because I realised at that point in my life I was just sabotaging my own happiness mm. and I needed to hold on to a relationship and I needed to figure out why I couldn't do that. So I decided to sit down with somebody and really, really go through it. Mm. I didn't cure it right away, but it changed my life. And it introduced me to how past things can influence your current circumstances without realizing it. 
It makes you talk about stuff that you haven't talked about for years and years and years. That was the moment everything changed for me in terms of being aware of my own mental health, for sure. And what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you, a sound, a sensation, being in a particular social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet? I'm very sensitive to noise, something that I've learned. So a big trigger for me can sometimes be loud arguing or loud voices, raised voices, like really sort of like kind of like or sort of fighting and intense aggression. Does that come back from the divorce? Yeah, parents, yeah, right? they, they would they would yeah. be pretty shouty arguments, and there was nothing physical about them. It, it, there wasn't anything like that, but I think it brings. But I have a very very specific memory of the biggest argument they ever had. It was upstairs. I was in the kitchen. I was about seven years old, and someone stamped on the floor so loud that I heard trickles of plaster come off the walls, and my cat froze and looked up at the ceiling, as in like, what's going on? And that's <laughs> your cat was yeah, rattled. <laughs> it was. That's what I can remember. That's what I can picture. So ever since then, I've had like some noise sensitivities and stuff. But I've learned how to manage it. If there's, you know, like if I'm in a town centre and I can see things are kicking off. Back in the day, I might be like, oh, interesting. What's going on here? But now I'm like, no thanks. To take a wide berth. I'm not interested in any of that at all. I wouldn't say anything else that I can think of maybe triggers my mental health. But I think you know, difficult conversational topics that I've had previously will might bring up some horrible memories, but then I'll be able to manage them quite well. But I think it's noise sensitivities that I find are the biggest trigger for me. But earplugs, that helps. Conversely, what positive tools and methods do you use to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked? Maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? Well, other than, you know, once having a kind of a a series of counselling sessions which haven't worked and being aware that you need to move on to others, I think picking the right people to talk to. I think I've learned that you know, there might be people that you really like as a friend and that you have a great relationship with, but they haven't got the emotional intelligence, mate. (laughs) Well, yeah. And they might have emotional intelligence, but they, yeah, they don't have that emotional intelligence. Or they provide a different role. Yeah. They provide, yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I think one of my best mates, you know, we go to the gym together constantly. I've known him since we were 13, we hang out, but I don't tend to talk a lot to him about the things I'm struggling with because we have two very different life experiences and two very different ways of approaching things like that. He just kind of, doesn't think about it and smashes his way through and that's always worked for him that's never worked for me and that's just fine so we just tend to avoid that topic but I think talking mate the thing that improves it Marv is just sitting down with my partner and if you haven't got a partner it's someone you really trust and just carving out that time and finding someone that has all the time that can give you all the time in the world on that specific occasion and is able to just know you well and listen. And that's what I do at the moment. Yeah, the, the sad irony of doing this job is that you speak to so many people and you listen to so many people that your circle of trust actually narrows. Really? <laughs> it's much lower than it used to be. Yeah, yeah. Why is that, do you think? Uh, because the issues that I've had to discuss are quite dark and not many people are able to deal with them. Combined with the fact that I also feel a responsibility that because a lot of people rely on me, therefore maybe I don't let other people Mm. or maybe i don't allow myself to be relied on or relied upon so i think it's a combination of those two but i'm trying to find ways to work that out yeah you need someone to interview you on this stuff people have (laughs) mate plenty of time i've done four interviews on this myself so my mate lloyd interviewed me in episode 10 Mm. which was literally a lord of the rings film that was like three (laughs) hours long we had to split into part one and two and they interviewed me again about a year ago and then I got interviewed another time by a mate who said he wanted to try and interview me after I'd interviewed him. So yeah, I've done four episodes where I've been interviewed myself right. on here. Three ones about just my own journey. But yeah, it's something I'm trying to work out at the moment, I would say. It's a work in progress. Okay. Well, such is mental health, right? 
No, exactly, exactly. But it does make it difficult. Mm. It does make it difficult yeah. at times. What is the best book, or as I call it, mental health bible you've read for your mental health, mate? Now, it can be self-help or mental health related. It doesn't exclusively have to be. And if you can't think of a book, a TV show, album, any piece of popular culture. I would say I have a book that I've ever read, like a self-help book, like you say. I think I have always gone to comforting TV shows that just make me feel better. And always been back for me is The West Wing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I used to just blitz my way through box sets of that at uni. And I now, in fact, funnily enough, one of my Christmas traditions, which my wife and I did the other day, was to watch the Christmas episode of The West Wing. There's something about The West Wing that I find very comforting. <laughs> it's a simpler time it's, in politics. <laughs> it's a very simpler time. And just the rapid fire dialogue, it's kind of just sort of like listening to a dance to me. And I just find it really comforting. And the music's beautiful and the characters are great. And I know every line that's coming, which I find comforting. So, yeah, I think if you have like a real go-to TV series that helps you, I've, I've always found that really helps me. I just feel better after watching it because it just makes the world simple again. It takes you back to a simpler time, I guess, in an area that I'm interested in, which is politics and journalism. But also it's the kind of art that I really like to consume, which is just really high quality TV series by someone who's probably the best writer of, of, of film or TV that I've ever I've ever sort of come across. So yeah, I retreat to the West Wing when it comes to consuming media for mental health. If there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health, what would it be and why? I think mine would be like, talk about it properly. I think you can talk about things really lightly and you can just mention things and then you can say about something, talk about something and go, oh, let's talk about that at the time, whatever. And it's like, no, no, no. And my partner's really good at sitting me down and going, right, no, let's talk about this right now. And so I think the mantra that I've sort of figured out is just like, yeah, talk about it properly and give it time. Be patient as well. I think sometimes we can really rush through life in all areas because we want to be successful and we want to present something to other people. But I think it's about being really patient with that stuff and really being patient with those conversations and giving it the space that it needs. It's not a very catchy mantra. <laughs> it's a good one, though. <laughs> Yeah. I've got two questions left. The first one is, what do you love about yourself? I think I love that I know that I am a really trusted friend for other people. And I think, yes, that's selfless. And it's like, you know, what do you love about yourself? Well, I'm, I'm putting the focus on other people already. But I think that gives me a real boost to know that people can rely mm. on me and people come and to although you as I'm, well. yeah yeah i think so and even though i can be quite scatty and i can be quite forgetful and i don't reply to texts and i lose my keys five times in a day i think i can be relied upon for that kind of get thing. a keys bowl mate. Think, get a keys bowl <laughs> well I, I or I, I get like 10 copies of every key and i put one in every room <laughs> <laughs> the organized mind and it hasn't fully worked but it's like written by this neuro psychologist is it daniel levitin and or daniel kahneman yes 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 daniel levitin yeah i've got right. his other book uh, this is your brain on music which i need to listen yeah to. yeah i, to I haven't made it through that one yeah. as much yeah same guy and he has some fabulous techniques which is like you know some of which are like yeah buy five pairs of glasses and put one in every room it's like all right mate but it works yeah. it works but what was the question what do i love yeah. about myself yeah being uh yeah just just being just being relied upon mm. and being loyal to people i think that's a great trait 100 percent, mate and as a final question this is a very broad one what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if most importantly they want to do it I think it's um, something we touched on earlier, which is the more we can do to create spaces for people to do that, the better. And I think that also 
that requires creativity and how to create those spaces. And it requires research because everybody is different and it requires time because people might be struggling with their mental health for reasons that they don't even know. So the other thing I think we can do is working harder to make sure that proper professional mental health help can be free. Mm -hmm. I think if things could be funded better, one example I give is like talking spaces, which is is a, if it helps people, it's like a group scenario. Me personally, I can't imagine anything worse than meeting up with a group of people that I don't know and talking about my mental health. I used to think that, but recent events have made me re-question that because I do need a space to talk to lads who have gone through the issues that I've gone through. Fair enough. I think from a personal thing, I, I think I'd find that hard, but, Having said that, I've just talked to you about sitting in a pub with five guys I didn't know and talking about mental health journeys through mm. miscarriage and grief. So what do I know? I think I'd like to see, I think sometimes I see that, you know, seriously high quality professional counselling is very, very expensive. Mm. And if there's a way that we could make that more accessible to people that don't have access to that kind of cash, then that would go a long way. Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me, mate. No problem. My pleasure, mate. Cheers. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. I want to say a massive, massive thank you to Chris for being my special guest and for letting me check in with him. I'll put links to where you can listen to his piece on Winter's Wish FC and follow him on social media in the show notes. I hope this episode has given all of you listeners an insight into the experience that men feel when they do go through miscarriage or baby loss. And I hope to cover this issue more in the future on the podcast. As always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please do give this podcast a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing and want to support us further, please go to our Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. Or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe or go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. <laughs>